Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. more interested in pleasure and expression than I had for a long time, which is part of what got me into architecture in the first place, to be honest. I really loved like a lot of kooky, like I loved Oliver Alto and some of the crazy Japanese architects from the 80s when I first got into architecture. And so it, it kind of got me back in touch with like what I what I loved about this profession in the first place, which is sort of inventive making of things and you know playing around with spaces. Hey everyone, I'm Jamie. I'm Amy, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Barbara Bester of Bester Architecture. She's been practicing architecture since she founded her studio in 1995. And she's known for experimental residences, like the home of Beastie Boy Mike D, and the rejuvenation of a couple of historic Lautner houses, and dynamic workplaces like Beats by Dre, Nasty Gal, and Snap. And hip hospitality, including Instagram darling Intelligentsia Coffee and Ashes and Diamonds Winery. She also teaches regularly at leading architecture universities while running her practice, authoring a book, giving talks, and raising two kids. She has all the qualifications of a true badass. So let's talk to Barbara. My name is Barbara Bester. I am based in Los Angeles, 
and I'm an architect building experimental modern projects. I've wanted to be an architect since I was a kid, and I just like thinking about and building different kinds of environments for people. I guess I'm people-oriented, and I think architecture is the best way to, you know, do stuff for people. <laughs> hmm. So I'd like to go back to the beginning and learn a little bit more about where you grew up and what your family was like and maybe paint the picture of your childhood for us. Sure. I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. When I was born, my dad was a grad student in anthropology and my mom was a German emigre who had moved to the U.S. in 1962 to marry my dad when they were both very, very young. I, I really liked Cambridge where I grew up. A lot of people of different kind of walks of life were there. It was more of a college town environment. There wasn't really a lot of money around. That kind of came later with biotech industry. But at the time, it was fairly diverse. My first elementary school was a brand new brutalist elementary school called Tobin Elementary in Cambridge. And we also coincided with the beginning of busing and all kinds of other stuff, which in where I was in Cambridge was not a big deal. I mean, in that there wasn't opposition to it. It was embraced, I think. But anyhow, so it was sort of an interesting, diverse child education in a very, like one of those kind of buildings that's a lot of concrete and some purple carpeted stairs where you could kind of have, you know, break time with other students old sort of early 70s ideas about play and children. Sometimes. Yeah, I, I love that you're describing your childhood in terms of the brutalist architecture and the purple carpet. <laughs> <laughs> it clearly it made a big impression on you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, is that kind of when you started feeling creative, like when you were in these spaces? Did, did you have like a really great art teacher? Or were your parents really creative? Or where did that even come from? I know my mom always says I spent a lot of time in nursery school, I guess, building this farm with like animals and barns and fences and stuff. And that like apparently quite a lot of time in painting at all. So I guess I had that impulse perhaps early in the summer. Sometimes I would go to see my grandmother in Germany. Me and my sister would go for like a couple months. And at some point I started to make boats to like she lived near one of those big public fountains in Germany where you like people kind of sail you know they have like little model sailboats and stuff and so I started to make weird boats like out of you know coffee containers and different stuff and I just really really liked building those so every summer I'd build you know several of them over time and take them up there and float them around and things so that, that I think is not dissimilar to what I like about architectural practice now that's kind of fun and perhaps improvised and you know not so much about fancy materials but about a kind of esprit de jour or something well I mean that must have been cool too getting a sample of life in Germany to go along with your upbringing in Cambridge it sounds like you had a, a smorgasbord of kind of cultures to choose from yeah, the countryside in Germany was really different and kind of beautiful, like these, you know, mountains with cows and cowbells. And Stuttgart, where my grandmother lived, was one of these cities that had been built 
new after World War II, so there was a lot of modern buildings, not a very big city, but they had sort of these different weird modern buildings that were in these big parks. Germany has a really big park culture. I always associate post-war stuff with um, kind of optimism. Was there optimism built into the city? I think so. There was a lot of emphasis on culture and the arts. The thing I remember, I don't even know who did it, sort of like a museum dance performance place opposite what now has the Jim Sterling Stuttgart Museum that he became really famous for. That kind of went up maybe when I was in high school or eighth grade or something. But like a little kind of culture area. And I also really liked pretzels, which is what you would call pretzels here. But that was the other big peak of my childhood was endless supply of fresh pretzels. That's so funny. My grandmom grew up right outside of Stuttgart as well. And I went to see her hometown, which I had only seen in pictures growing up. And all I ate the entire trip was pretzels. And I remember driving down the Autobahn and seeing all those green rolling hills and thinking, oh, this is so nice and picturesque. So it's cool to like hear from somebody who who grew up going there as well. Okay, let's move on to the teenage years, because uh, adolescence is usually marked by some pretty serious growing pains for most people. What did yours look and feel like? Well, I lived in Cambridge and then we moved to a small town in Michigan for a year in the late 70s. What Albion, Michigan? Do you know it? I grew up in Ypsilanti. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about your life in Albion and moving there as a teenager. What kind of transition was that like for you? Well, it was a bit of a shock. I was only there ultimately for a year, but it was what was interesting was it was such a different kind of a place than Cambridge, which had been, you know, let's say practically like a socialist state of, you know, liberalism. And, and so Albion was like a pretty impoverished town that had had a bunch of had a bunch of glass factories and car related factories that had recently shut down. So it was kind of part of that like seventies recession America. And that also had a lot of really semi-violent like race relations, like a sort of small town, you know, this group mm-hmm. against that group. So I sort of got more introverted there and I got really into playing the flute and then into P.G. Woodhouse books. And I just sat around reading P.G. Woodhouse books all the time and I created a P.G. Woodhouse lending library for my family that I don't know if anybody ever took me up on it, but I was just kind of like a pretty dorky weirdo person. And as a, as a mathlete as well, I believe I competed in Kalamazoo and some mathlete type stuff. So that was weird. And then I went back to Cambridge and they did have good music though in Michigan. Like there was the thing that's when I discovered parliament. Yeah. So wait, where was Albion in relationship to Detroit? Was it even accessible or... Was it- Detroit, my mom once took me to the Renaissance Center to see, you know, city living, but it was sort of like a couple hours from Detroit, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So not easily accessible, definitely removed from urban life. Yeah. Yeah. Very small, very much like the Mayberry in, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird was kind of how I saw it. Wow. It's so interesting because that's definitely different from my experience of Michigan, but I, you know, I lived close enough and drove through towns like that to understand exactly what you're talking about. But coming from Cambridge, that must have felt like, I don't know, it, it sounds like you hunkered down and kind of spent your time with the flute and PG Woodhouse and just kind of waited till you could get out. Is 
that what you're saying? I guess so. You know, nowadays everybody talks about the bubble and, you know, do you live in a bubble? And I certainly realized at a young age, oh yeah, I live in it. Where I grew up was a super bubble. I think we all had felt that when Nixon got elected the first time, because I remember in, you know, first grade or second grade, whatever, like we all voted and everybody voted for whoever it was, McGovern, not Nixon, like one person voted for Nixon. Then Nixon actually won. We're like, that's that's not democratic. How could that be? But it was just because that was the Cambridge demography, you know. So this mm-hmm. kind of helped me change my thing. It had a lot of beautiful things. There's like a beautiful Kalamazoo River. And you could kind of like go drifting down the river in a, in a inflatable rubber tire and stuff. But it was, a, it was a, that's a complicated time, like seventh grade. And then I went back to... Cambridge and I went to this high school called Cambridge Pilot School that was part of Fringe and Latin. It's where like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck I guess went a couple years later but there was only one high school for the whole town and I think the first I think freshman year I remember this group of kids had a cover band and they were doing Devo covers you know in jumpsuits out in front and I thought that was super cool and I was very <laughs> happy to be in high school so <laughs> I ended up managing a band in high school for a while, like a ska band. And I got into like anti-nuke stuff and set up a couple of punk shows that were, you know, the money went to anti-nuke. Cambridge Students for Disarmament, I guess, was a group that a friend of mine and I started. So yeah, so I sort of did politics and music and a lot of schoolwork. That's cool. It's like activism, but it was kind of a, had a creative slant to it. Yeah. And social, like it's sort of fun to have those right. parties, you know, and everybody has to pay five bucks or something. I kind of knew that whole time that I was going to do architecture. I'd already thought about that a little earlier and I did an internship at, at this firm that had done the Boston Aquarium, which I thought was a cool building. I didn't know how to do anything. So I was more like in the slide library and stuff, but I absorbed some of the sense of this cool 70s architecture office, almost like from a lifestyle point of view. I liked that a lot. And then I did a summer program at Harvard grad school in architecture and I loved like you know doing studio work designing stuff and I was just super happy about that so then I I knew what I was going to do later. So then you ended up at Harvard again to do your undergrad right? Yeah and I was an art major I did painting but I I also again knew all the time I was going to go into architecture ultimately I did a lot of sociology and French semiotics and just big at the time and then I went to England for a year to this really amazing architecture school called the AA. I was a like full scholarship student. I was kind of a penniless person and they actually let me have my scholarship to go to this other school in England which was amazing and oh, that's awesome. such a gift. So I got to go do this like really experimental education thing for a year and that's what ended up leading me to go to LA because everybody in London was talking about Los Angeles as the the one place in the world where you could do like really cool, interesting architecture. Ah, that, that was my next question was how did you end up or why did you end up in LA? But that answers that question. So tell me a little bit more about your college years in LA, getting your master's. I took a year off after college out here. I, mean, I moved to LA and then I was kind of working by day at this experimental architecture firm called Oxruno which means something like axis of uncertainty, doing like these really complicated 
pen and ink drawings and then I would waitress at night and but I, when I when I got to SciArc the next fall, it was super fun. I did three and a half years of grad school. And at the time, SciArc was still in this kind of funny, big ranging factory building with another like warehousey space behind it, and all kinds of people coming through to teach there. I, I spent a lot of time with Mike Davis, who wrote City of Courts, mm-hmm. kind of a, a historian, a theorist, and some great designers and architects. And we got to put on an experimental play of Ubu Wah, like as this course, <laughs> course catalog. It was very, it was a, it was really like an art school experience, which I loved. I mean, it was so freeing because it was much less, it was much less say academic than what I'd done as an undergrad, but also pretty rigorous in terms of the amount of, you know, work one had to produce and the idea of like making your own you know, idea of what architecture is. Like it wasn't very prescriptive in terms of what architecture is. And I really liked that. Do you feel like that's where you started to find your own particular voice? Or at that point, are you still really just exploring everything that you can get your hands on? I I think I did. I mean, not that long ago, I was looking at my thesis project from grad school. So that's like 1992 two or something and it was in Frogtown, which is as you mm-hmm. guys know an area of interest these days and it was this idea of densifying Frogtown by adding new buildings behind existing little houses because Frogtown was a neighborhood of little kind of workmen's houses that are like 400 to 600 square feet and then also taking over some of the old factories to make this factory where you would build the parts for these houses so you're sort of like had like an economic idea you could kind of create jobs for the neighborhood in this place making these kit of parts that could then become houses to densify the area and then like a bridge over the river and stuff like that so a lot of stuff that is stuff i still totally work on today yeah <laughs> even super, like super like relevant a couple little houses in frogtown that i rent out because I, I bought some like now 15 years ago or something i've been working on some like changing old manufacturing buildings into other things for some different developers lately which is kind of also is part of that thesis project oh wow so if that thesis project was in 92 and you're still working on things that are very of that thesis project and very relevant does it feel like that's a a normal timeline for architecture or do you feel like (laughs) (laughs) i'm interested yeah the fact that i'm like you know 50 51 and and i'm considered a young architect just goes to show you architecture (laughs) is a little different than you know reality tv or something well yeah it does take a while to get a building realized and it also i mean Cities have generations and they don't change. Sometimes they change really fast, but it's it's layered and complex. Yeah, and economics have a lot to do with it. So like that in 1991, 92, it's like we were in a big recession. You know, real estate wasn't worth that much. There wasn't that there wasn't the pressure of density. You know, people were moving to L.A. to rent an apartment for like 600 bucks or whatever. So it was a different time. But I think the idea of what what can you do with what already exists in the city and then kind of like architecture as augmented reality in a way is which is i think part of what i was doing in my thesis is something i'm still interested in so it's almost more like as opposed to needing a tabula rasa in order to build a building how do you work with things that are here or in between them or you know relate to them like i'm more contextual than your average modernist bear you know okay (laughs) 
So let's talk about that. I mean, 92 was your thesis. You founded your studio, Bester Architecture, in 95. And I'm wondering, you know, as a young professional, just getting your studio up and running, what were some of the highlights and breakthroughs and steepest learning curves that you encountered in your early professional life? Well, at the very beginning, I I got a project, a friend of a friend was a TV actually a couple who were TV writers and they wanted to build a new house in the Palisades. And I had a nice introduction to them, but I also knew I didn't really have enough experience to take it on. And I got this friend of mine, Norman Millar, who was my friend for a long time and who passed away only a year ago now. So he and I joined forces and did a joint venture and then got that job together. And then we started, we kind of opened up shop together, not as partners, but as like two entities in a joint venture. Mm -hmm. And we did a bunch of stuff together and kind of shared this overhead. And it was like the back of a store in Los Feliz, kind of near the Dresden room. And I was there for a long time and it was really kind of a nice way to get started because so I, I was teaching, I mean, a lot of architects, when you start, you kind of balance your practice, which may not be like, you know, all is super busy with teaching gigs. And so I was teaching at UCLA for a long time and then at SciArc doing different kinds of projects. Somehow what I mostly did on my own were, like at first I got like four in a row of these kind of complicated home offices for writers where I got to design and build all the furniture as well. well I didn't actually build the furniture, but like sort of design actual pieces of furniture. And mm-hmm. it got, got me more interested in that level of detail, you know, like a real sort of one-to-one kind of the art of craft and furniture stuff and sort of the atmosphere that you create. You know, most of the writers I know kind of are in there writing space a lot of time during the day. Mm-hmm. It's like they really live there. So it's kind of like a little nest and I liked doing that. And then I got a lot more house remodel projects and also some bigger commercial. Like I did, a, I had worked a lot with this group called the Actors Gang because mm-hmm. my ex-boyfriend wrote a bunch of plays for them, like him and, he and Tim Robbins did all this stuff. So I ended up doing their theater when they got a permanent home on Santa Monica Boulevard. And that was challenging because it was a lot more technical and it was taking a warehouse and building a theater inside of it involved essentially building a separate steel skeleton kind of inside. Mm-hmm. And I... I'm someone who always was very interested, like sort of tectonics as a major form of expression for architecture, like structure and skin and stuff. So that was very exciting because sort of like this other layer, you know, inside the building that became the structure that held the lighting grid. And yeah, pretty much learned something on every project. I would say I was probably more of a hardcore modernist on most of my stuff like through the 90s although I, I guess I did these record company offices that were kind of more funky and fun but I was the when I built new a couple, a couple of new houses and stuff they were more you know white white well they weren't white stucco but they were like hardy panel and they're more minimalist let's say in their expression I would say I kind of turned into more of a maximalist later (laughs) 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 I'll still go both ways but (laughs) well that's nice to know well over the course of your profession you've definitely had a real impact on the cultural identity of Los Angeles I mean there are experimental residences you've rejuvenated and restored a couple of historic Lautners you've done social media darling hospitality places like intelligentsia coffee And workplaces, Beats by Dre, Snap, Nasty Gal. So you're definitely 
putting your stamp on Los Angeles in kind of a magical way. One recent project that I, I really want to talk to you about is called Blackbirds in Echo Park. And I want to hear about it in your words. But it, when you talked about your thesis project, Blackbirds came to mind because it's a it's a housing development that's also deals with urban density in an interesting way. So can you talk to us about that project? Yeah, I, I love that project because, well, among other things, I spent like five years on it, but, but <laughs> these developers have bought five adjoining lots in the hills of Echo Park, which is a very particular like ecosystem architecturally. And I, I lived there for a long time and knew it pretty well. The guy that they bought them from had originally compiled them and was going to build like a big box that was like 25 apartments or something. Mm-hmm. And then I think just decided to see what price he could get on the market for the land. And they decided to do a small lot subdivision, which is a LA specific code thing that was invented really to add density to neighborhoods that are smaller in scale. You know, we don't have a lot of high-rise buildings here obviously nor do we even have that many like four-story neighborhoods but in a kind of multifamily neighborhood how could you how could you create more density without you know building a giant box mm-hmm. but the site is very complicated topographically quite a high kind of variation from like very steep rolling hills across these five lots but the goal for us was to make a sort of set of houses that are scale wise related to what's going on in the neighborhood, but also have a kind of sense of individuality amongst them. Early on, we started out with modeling, you know, how to fit these sort of both little houses and cars onto the site. And I realized that there was this unexploited loophole in the small lot ordinance, which meant that you didn't actually have to have covered parking. So you could have your cars could just park, you know, Au plein air, which is really great from a massing point of view, because one of the big things that makes a lot of new development really chunky is parking, you know, like you end up with like a four or 500 square foot box that just has two cars in it, which 90% of the time doesn't actually have cars in it, according to public studies, it's usually like everyone's storage or something. Mm-hmm. So we eliminate a lot of that and use the part, the middle part of it as this, this idea of this living street where cars could park, it's heavily landscaped. During the day when the cars aren't there, you know, it's pretty low, low traffic. So it's sort of an okay place that kids could go, or you could also with your neighbors organize an evening and get all the cars out of the space and have an event. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the, let's say the genesis was working around this interior parking, not parking space, mm-hmm. and then using the streets on each side of the lots to be sort of fronts and backs to the houses that we were building. Ultimately, we built 18 houses on these five lots, and a lot of them are masked in the way that two of them together look like one house, and there's another couple sets that are three houses that look like two houses, and the lie is really in the form, like the form is a kind of asymmetrical gabled roof a lot of the time, and so in these projects, sometimes, you know, the two halves of the gable are the two different houses, and they're, they're connected invisibly by like a, a plate that kind of covers up the eight inches between them. So we called it stealth density. That mm. It's like dense. It's a very dense project in that it's 18 instead of five houses, but it really only looks like about eight houses. Wow. And people really like it. People like the small lot because you can buy the house outright. It's not like a condo. So you can have a, a typical mortgage when you're buying one of these things. So it's kind of a nice tool mm. for, for densification. You know, it's still individual home ownership, but not using as much land. 
big, big landscape agenda too in this. I mean, we worked with meal air and the landscape and that's sort of a big part of how the whole thing relates to the street. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole and things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. 
Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. That's one of the things that I appreciate about it. You kind of figured out how to work with the scale of the neighborhood, create a denser living situation, but you also incorporated the the landscape as part of the program, which is nice. And it's nice for the people who live there too. <laughs> yeah, no, the, but my favorite thing was that I got invited a few months ago to a dinner party that eight of the houses had together in the in the middle courtyard. So they had set up all these big tables and had a big potluck dinner in the middle. And it was just super uh, exciting because it was like a, you know, as architects, we really want to create community amongst, yeah. amongst humans and I was like oh we got community success you said at the beginning you love people so community and people that's the same yeah. thing yeah. <laughs> I also want to talk about another recent project which is a little bit different it's not residential but Ashes and Diamonds Winery in Napa which deals with a different set of challenges so can you tell us a little bit about that project as well Oh yeah, Ashes and Diamonds. Like the client on that is this guy Kashi Coletti, who I sort of knew from back in the day working on. I did some space for the Beastie Boys, their record company, Grand Royal, and their magazine. And Kashi used to work on that. And he was opening a new winery in Napa. That was he specifically wanted to to make it kind of for a younger generation of wine people, and also kind of contrary to the general trends in Napa Valley, a winery that was really celebrating its Californianness and kind of Americanness in terms of design. There's a lot of, you know, neo Renaissance, neo whatever kind of wineries in Napa. And so I thought that was kind of a thrilling idea. Like, so it's sort of, it's like a little bit meta about California modernism, this building. And I had been working on this show about Albert Frey and Lena Babardi for the Palm Springs Museum at the time. So I'd really been steeped in some Palm Springs language. And one of the ideas was to make this winery, which is set back from the main road quite a bit, was to try and make part of it at least a sign for the winery itself. You know, you can't really do signage per se in Napa mm -hmm. Valley. But so I ended up doing this folded roof that is a, essentially a big shade structure over the hospitality building. And that folded roof is almost like a, a Wexler house or something like that in Palm Springs, but like much more exaggerated and 
oversized. And then below it is, is this very simple volume with a lot of glass and a wood interior that's kind of like a like also like a supersized Palm Springs house in that it's well let's not say Palm Springs like a case study house but it's kind of like it's not the same scale but mm. it's a sort of really big room and you get that you, we were able to sort of play with some of the tropes of post-war optimistic modernism in terms of how that whole hospitality space worked. We also got to do the landscapes. So we sort of took all the all the excavations that were done for the foundations and used them to make these mounds in the back that give a little bit of a rolling hills landscape that you can kind of sit in to watch projections on the wall of the factory building at night. And even the factory itself, we were able to sort of manipulate the skin of it. It's like a prefab type metal building shed with, you know, full on crush pad and uh-huh. wine vats on the inside but the outside facing sort of public facing side is more articulated and has these circular windows and a this flat wall that you can project movies onto and stuff so it's a very like, outdoor living sort of celebration kind of california so I'm, I'm very excited about it. it only opened in october and we're kind of waiting for the landscape to grow in Oh, I'm excited to visit. I'm up there quite a bit. So, well, the wine's really wonderful, too. So continuing to talk about your creative process, as I was, um, you know, doing some research, a a few phrases kept reappearing in your visual language, and they are sunshine versus smog, strange beauty and atmospheric urbanism. (laughs) So I want to get your your take on, on what those all mean. Let's start with sunshine versus smog. What do you mean by that? Well, that I, I like to use it to describe kind of Southern California culture, I guess a way of setting it up as a kind of like an AC DC current, you know, behind mm-hmm. the city. And so an example would be, you know, optimistic, indoor outdoor living glass houses versus film noir you know kind of chinatown shadows made out of shaded venetian blinds and you know dark deeds happening on brightly lit suburban streets so there's a kind of that that would be like the noir side i guess and i there was a wonderful show at the hammer museum ages ago i think called sunshine noir and it was sort of a german curator's idea of california art Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s and that that double value that you see like in b movies or in other kinds of you know more mainstream culture i think keeps persisting and and really for us architects the there was this very important movement in the 70s and 80s called the la school which is sort of when frank gary became a bigger figure in morphosis and eric on moss and I think it's David Gisson, who's a architecture historian professor, describes that as a kind of smog era in LA architecture. So, you know, after say the glass houses of case study modernism, there's this sort of counter movement that is more like a kind of punk rock deconstructivist, et cetera, movement, which is really what LA became very famous for in the later 20th century. And that is, that's also sort of under the rubric of smog, I think. So I guess for architecture wise, I kind of look at it as, yeah, sort of a, you know, the Pierre Koenig versus the Frank Gehry kind of back and forth in terms of our architectural sort of history and culture that we operate in. I don't, I don't think people always think about it that way, but you're, you're kind of in this zone of 
you know, which kind of experimentalism is it high modernist or is it postmodernist? And that seems to be an ongoing issue for a lot of us in especially design oriented offices today. So what about this idea of strange beauty? <laughs> well, I, I came up with this motto, kind of was trying to get like a, you know, what is it that we're doing here statement together for the office. And I came up with this idea that everybody should experience strange beauty every day. And it's a hybrid of concepts, one of them being the Russian formalist idea that art is making strange, that sometimes just by decontextualizing something like, you know, a public bathroom that suddenly has this really beautiful, you know, piece of faucet in or something like that. Like you can kind of create these aha moments in your day that, that make you feel more alive in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also the everyday thing that that even the more mundane projects or, you know, street corners can be kind of, you can have these moments and that that's something that is architecture's role. It's sort of what's behind the weird range of projects that we have that they often like the, the workspaces are, are in a sense, urban design projects. You know, you might have like 500 people in this office space and how are you creating all these different touch points for them during the day that aren't just the regular old desk that they sit at, but the other stuff that they can do and where they see other people. How does atmospheric urbanism come into all this can you talk about what that is atmospheric urbanism is thinking about how you can create sometimes architectural experience without having all three dimensions to work with and it certainly applies a lot when you're looking at a city like LA where a lot of the city is getting recycled and not necessarily like torn down and replaced, but you're reoccupying places that were something else before and now they're a new thing. Yeah. And, and, so and they so, have all these chapters still. Yeah. And you want to, yeah. you want to keep those and you want to add to it. But sometimes even just because of, you know, how budgets work, sometimes all you really have is the two dimensional palette. And I think that you can do a lot to create an atmosphere by doing things like paint colors and graphics and some materiality, you know, in a given space to really have that feel a very particular way, as opposed to like an adjacent space that may be a similarly sized and lit space, but you can make that feel very different as well. So it's a little bit using the tools of scenography. One could say that, you know, the sort of tile thing that we started doing back 10 years ago at Intelligentsia is part of that, where you suddenly have this pattern that kind of travels mm -hmm. from outside to inside and up the counter. Mm -hmm. But also certainly in the workspaces where we have these really big volumes and big spaces, and we, we really try to bring a lot of color in and, you know, creative use of subtle graphics and wallpapers and stuff like that to make that space more human friendly. So like we just did a project for Snap where, we took a building that used to be the Museum of Flying in Santa Monica near the airport. And then later on, it was an Audi showroom slash engineering workshop. And then we turned it into an office for a lot of people. And we brought a lot of natural elements in. A lot of them were artificial natural elements. Like we created a wallpaper based on leaves that travels through a lot of the public spaces. And it really changes the way, you know, you experience that space. It doesn't have a lot of natural light necessarily. So often we had to create these things that sort of, felt light lighter than the space actually was and i think if you think of it in terms of atmosphere it's out of the the typical let's say architectural toolkit of plan and section but the idea that there's all these other layers that we have at our disposal as designers to really you know create specificity in space is a very particular kind of atmosphere like a choice 
and it must be kind of fun for you too to be able to see a project through to the finishing details to be able to conceive of that at the outset and then have that be part of the finished design all right so barbara we're gonna shift gears a little bit to your personal life i did want to ask you about something that i think all of our listeners could benefit from your take on you gave a ted talk and you were pretty candid about how going through a painful divorce may have helped open the doors to new ways of working. I'm just kind of interested now that it's in the rearview mirror a little bit and you have some hindsight on the whole chapter. I'm wondering what advice you might give fellow creatives about embracing the rawness of life and what it might hold for you. Mm, well, one thing that I found helpful through that journey, I guess, was Jung, <laughs> Carl Jung, who, who very, very conveniently, like, posits that not only is, you know, early childhood really important, like it is for Freud, but for Jung, there's this whole midlife part that's also really important. One of the things I had gotten out of reading some Jung, which happened, like, when I got divorced and I was searching around for, like, midlife crisis material, was finding out that the midlife crisis is considered sometimes an incredibly important opportunity for personal growth, which is not something you necessarily think of in, you know, people driving red sports car type midlife crisis. Mm. And so, so, and, that, and for me, that actually was true because I think something that maybe isn't uncommon in architects is that we like rules and we live by a lot of rules and we create even more complicated rules to live by or design by. And I certainly had been a very rule. Like I liked sort of rules and structures. I was really just sort of detached suddenly from this whole kind of rule set that I had set up for myself. And one of the things I started to do was almost revert back to like my mindset when I was in college, when everything was sort of open ended and I had thought about going to grad school for art, Uh just kind of, you know, just cutting loose from all the rules. But then I ended up building this house for myself and my daughters because I was sort of single momming there for the first year or so. And I really had such a good time building this house. And then I got, I got some other project too. And I was like, you know, I actually really like architecture, especially because I was doing it more, let's say flying by the seat of my pants. Like I just wasn't following the rules. I was just doing whatever I felt like, which in that case, um, sorry, there's a police car outside my window. Um, in that case, it's because you weren't, you weren't following the rules. I know. <laughs> So, you know, in the past, all the houses I had built had, you know, flat roof and kind of metal windows and a very, you know, it wasn't about color. They were really just sort of experiments in very minimal structures. And I ended up getting this weird house that had this gable roof and I kind of exaggerated and I kind of got into the whole thing. Like it was almost like a fun like set maybe for me and my daughters to live this sort of idyllic life together. And I did this huge garden, which I'd never done before with my friend Stephanie Bartron and anyhow it just ended up being a really positive experience and it also got like published like crazy weirdly because all this other stuff I've been trying to get published forever everyone's like yeah it kind of looks you know like dwell I don't know (laughs) (laughs) and so I had this really unusual like outlier house and it was it was good so it sort of it sort of helped me get into another stage of work where I was really more interested in pleasure and expression than I had for a long time, which is part of what got me into architecture in the first place, to be honest. I really loved like a lot of kooky 
like I loved Oliver Alto and some of the crazy Japanese architects from the eighties when I first got into architecture. And so it, it kind of got me back in touch with like what I, what I loved about this profession in the first place, which is sort of inventive making of things and, you know, playing around with spaces. So that, and then I did a book uh, because of that house. I got this great, great book contract and I did a whole book about living in Silver Lake and Bohemian modernism. So it was really good. I would say that even though it was the probably the worst thing that happened to me at that time, just being set loose like that ended up allowing me to like grow by kind of rebuilding both my identity and my attachment and my vocation in a kind of open-ended way. It was also very fortunate that I was able to have that freedom. In the end, I, I wouldn't change it for the world, which is you know, not what I would have said back then. Right. Sometimes the universe actually has to kind of crack your shell and force you to divest of things that aren't serving you. And it's usually pretty painful when that happens. Yeah. I like the word liminality. Like, no, you're no longer attached to your persona or whatever that you've created. The only argument, which I think for me anyhow is true, is that you kind of come up with the idea of who you're going to be as an adult when you're a teenager. And you sort of set about doing that. And I, I definitely did that. Like, I kind of had this, you know, I don't know, Leonardo da Vinci meets Alvaro meets like eight is enough, like living in California, <laughs> being architect. And I kind of did all that and then everything like fell apart and I was like oh like wait a minute okay so who am I actually after all this time mm-hmm. has passed you know and I had to kind of reevaluate but but in the end that ended up being very yeah creatively a very good thing you mentioned two kids so I want to know I guess like when you were talking about your childhood and how you you mentioned a lot of the buildings around you and your relationships or your experiences within those buildings I'm wondering like what do you hope that the built world can give your kids, not only the experiences that they have within the architecture that you've actually created yourself, like your home and other spaces around Los Angeles, but like all architecture. I am also wondering like how you see that evolving to actually support the next generation who's going to be living with this architecture. Both my kids are, are kind of activists in different communities, one of them's been doing some stuff on homelessness and like homeless women and girls, and they're looking at the parts of the like problematic things happening in the city as it changes that are, you know, let's say the voices of the less heard people in in the city. And they ask me sometimes, well, what are you doing about this, you know, as an architect? And that's, it's, you know, I'm like, ah, this is a good question. Like, I, you know, some, a lot of the economics behind building are not in architects' hands, you know. But, but at the same time, how do you come up with new proposals? In my case, I'm kind of interested in, like, where can we put a lot more housing? You know, where, where, where can we be opportunistic that doesn't necessarily turn into like a NIMBY nightmare, but is also like helps create the urban density that I think is really healthy for people, you know, to be able to walk around and see a lot of other people. It's like a really good thing. Generally, I don't, I'm not big on isolated suburbs. Mm -hmm. So I guess for them, I think that that next generation is really going to be looking at a city that might go from, you know, where we're 15 or 18 million to like 24 million or something like a whole lot more people without any more, space necessarily because I don't think anyone's going to be moving to Palmdale anymore so how do they navigate that new sort of densification and it's interesting because it, I, I think what's great is that they don't have the the baggage of a kind of nostalgia for the LA of the 19 
50s or 60s, which a lot of older generation people do. Like when I got here in the late 80s and 90s, you know, it was really economically depressed. Everybody could buy a house for like a dollar. And, and it was very much that single family house texture, which is starting to change a lot. Mm-hmm. But they don't have that same nostalgia because they haven't really seen it. They haven't grown up in a city that was like that. It was already under a lot of change. So I think, you know, is it going to be a Tokyo model or a New York model or some Mexico city model or something else entirely that I think is going to be in that generation's hands to some degree. I don't think they're going to be, I think they're going to be more yimby than NIMBY, which I think is a good thing. I don't know what that means. Oh, okay. So YIMBY is the yes in my backyard as opposed uh, to no in my backyard. So oh. San Francisco has a very active <laughs> Well, San Francisco has, a, has an activist group called Yimbis, you know, that is, you know, play, like they're a much greater housing crisis in San Francisco and the yeah. tech corridor. And, but San Francisco also has a huge anti-development contingent of like an older generation that has, you know, a lot invested in their Victorian houses and stuff. So don't want to see any new construction. So the Yimby people have started showing up at planning hearings in support of anything, even the ugliest project in the world, because they're like, we don't care. We just need more housing. So we're going to show up at these things and not, you know, not just let it be dominated by the naysayers. And LA is starting to have a little bit of that as well. It's just, it's more nascent movement here. Yeah. Yeah. It will be interesting how it'll be forced to change to accommodate the influx of people. And hopefully it's done so in a thoughtful and meaningful way, as opposed to a haphazard way, which which isn't really is to say that, it you know, not thought has gone in on the front end to figure out how to create these spaces and communities and neighborhoods that can really support growth. Yeah, I mean, so much. I mean, just in the time that I've been here, which is a while now, but, you know, there was like no public transportation infrastructure to speak of other than some buses. Yeah. And, you know, there was no electric vehicles. And I mean, a lot, there's no Uber and, and Lyft. And I mean, all these things are really changing the way people navigate the city. There's no bike lanes. I spent some time in Copenhagen recently with one of my daughters, and it was so amazing. And they did like a mill and you must bicycle everywhere kind of policy. I think they made cars. Cars there are like, you know, $150,000, so nobody really has a car because of taxes or something. So really, like everybody bicycles in the dead of winter in Copenhagen, which is, you know, kind of bananas. But you can (laughs) see, you, you, you see what like a stronger stance by the city can do like you can you can do a lot if you're willing to muscle up on the government side or on the regional side and that that's that's one of the big tests coming up like are there going to be activists urging the city to do better i mean i think internally you know the christopher hawthorne parasite thing seems like that's going to be a positive yeah push but keeping my eye on that i have i have high hopes yeah wow okay so let's Let's look at you and your future. You have a lot of accomplishments under your belt already, and you've got a family and you've got your midlife crisis already behind you. So I hope I what do you have to look forward to in terms of personal growth? Like what's one thing you hope to learn? Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I guess I, I am super obsessed with the, 2028 Olympics and I got like two people working on like ideas for the Olympics just so that I can have like a 
a, a grab bag full of ideas to kind of throw out there as we move towards it. Because I think, you know, for in 1984, when LA had the Olympics, it was a really big moment for LA design and architecture. And I worked on this, on Deborah Sussman, who designed the LA Olympics back then. And I did a show about her. And it was funny because it was sort of, it was a little bit like, hey, my dad has a barn, let's put on a show. It was like a fast, you know, we got to come up with a graphic identity. We got to come up with a color palette. We're going to make a million things out of paper and sprinkle them all over the city. And then you have like this week of people walking around there's all these like sauna tubes painted cool colors and scaffolding with flags on it the real like temporal city explosion and i think that kind of work is you know what would that be now is it really interesting I and mean, now we have you know public transportation so we have a lot more places to kind of catch people and you know get them excited but i think it's a great it's a great sort of possible project for art, art people and architecture people in different communities in LA to like collaborate on like how do we want to show ourselves to the world if we're going to be like the most diverse and pioneering city in a somewhat conservative America mm-hmm. what story are we telling you know and, and sometimes these things are a little more like you know the Oscar show like a more kind of corporatized thing but we have so much time before the LA Olympics that I think there's a way to really get a lot more voices into it. And so I'm pretty interested in that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I would love to know, like, what do you want long term? Like, are are you thinking your studio will continue to grow? Is there a particular project that you just like down the road really want to do that you've never worked on before? Are there any other big issues in the future that you want to tackle? What's like the long-term picture here? Well, I go back and forth. For a long time, I have been very just interested in the city and it's changing and growth. And for me, anyhow, I do sort of like some legacy projects that are you know actually like useful as an example of how to do something like the Blackbird thing. You know, I invest a lot of my own time into that just to kind of get a good project out there that would appeal to people that aren't, you know, just architects, but as a kind of a, like, oh yeah, actually, this is actually a nice, you know, I can live here, like, you know, kind of de, not demystifies, but destigmatizes density. Mm-hmm. I am really interested in housing. I mean, I guess I think I'm kind of good at it, just from having done all these different kinds of projects like that. So I've been looking at some areas where I think it could kind of rezone and add housing that could be really interesting along the LA river and it's tricky though land's really expensive here now so it's it's you know it's easier if there's just tons of cheap land and developers are like woohoo and right now I think the development community and the political community and the neighborhood communities are all sort of wary of each other and you know there isn't as much going on as there certainly could be yeah So the LA Design Festival is happening, coming up. Do you have anything going on during that time or any projects that you want to point out in particular that our listeners should look up, go to and visit, get involved in in some way? An interesting project for the senior community center that's kind of like a hypothetical project that is over on Riverside Drive in Los Feliz near the fountain. And that's a cool one that I was going to try and publish soon. It'll end up being a private-public partnership on some existing land that the Parks Department owns. I guess that's one to look out for if it ends up, you know, in curved or something. Does it have and, a name? Well, it's not very memorable. It's GPAC, which is like the <laughs> Griffith Park Adult Community Center. Okay. I, I guess I guess I should probably give it a, our project a name. <laughs> 
And then I think that the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music is a really great one to see. It's in Los Feliz on Hollywood Boulevard near Vermont, and they have these really great music programs, even for adults, like they have adult choir. But the space has a kind of informal, like, street-facing lobby hangout space, and then it has this kind of more radical little world of rehearsal rooms in the middle built around like a disco ball that houses the big bathrooms weirdly and then it's a big assembly place at the back but that that's a good one to look out for for events and concerts that i'm super proud of that's kind of like a bigger size project for us on the urban scale cool yes and that silver lake conservatory of music that's new but the actual conservatory has been around for a long time so this means it's growing and it's growing into a new bigger space that's awesome yeah, I think they now have 50% of their classes are free for the for kids who can't afford to take them, and then they're subsidized by the other 50%. So it's kind yeah. of like providing the music education that, that's been, you know, value engineered out of the schools. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I guess the other, I guess I should say that's, the, it's, you know, Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers is the person who started the conservatory and is kind of the main cheerleader and ringleader of that whole thing. So it was fun to you know, work with him. And he got a lot of people in the music world to help contribute so they could grow and move into this new space. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I would love to direct our listeners to find you, follow you, read all about what you're doing. So can you give it, us your web address and then any social media handles you have? Oh, sure. Yeah. The web address is besterarchitecture.com and that has all of our projects and Instagram. I have two, I have at Bester Architecture, which is sort of the official office one. And then I have my own one, which is just at Barbara Bester. And I think I'm also on Twitter at Barbara Bester, but I'm more of an Instagrammer than a Twitterer. Well, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening and and I appreciate you sharing all of your thoughts and philosophies with us. Thank you guys so much. (laughs) It was great to talk to you guys. I really appreciate your taking the time. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. She's a pretty phenomenal person. I mean, she's doing so much for L.A. I mean, she's like transforming it. I love that she's really excited to wrap her head around the density issue and come up with some solutions. You know, I live here and I see a lot of condo and apartment buildings going up and they all feel like more of the same with just maybe a a modern stucco coat on the outside you know but they don't really feel like they're rethinking any of the standard problems that come up with that and so I like that she is I love that she's thinking about the Olympics and that that's really exciting to her and she's like figuring out all the kinds of ways that like different creatives can collaborate on this explosion of temporal stuff in the city that Mm -hmm. sounds so fun I know. When when is that happening? 2028. 2028. So she's got some time. Well, yeah, but you know, <laughs> yes these and no. And, architecture, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it takes a while to get anything done. 
Yeah, but I agree with you about the the density issue. As we've talked to quite an, a few people, they've mentioned the growing population of the entire world, of course, but you know, large cities like LA are obviously going to be impacted the most with growth. And as it is, LA is sprawling, it's spread out, it's hard to get around. So, you know, we need people like Barbara Bester thinking about housing, but also thinking about the communities and how people can continue interacting in their spaces and and can get from point A to point B and live their lives in a more efficient way without feeling like they're crammed for space or like they don't have privacy. I don't know. Like, she, I, I like that she's thinking about that. And we need more people be, to, to be doing that right now. One of the things about her talk that really affected me was the idea of all these residents getting together and inviting her to a dinner party right. on, their, on their shared yard space. <laughs> because I think about some of these apartment buildings and condos, and you end up being fairly anonymous. You maybe run into your neighbors in the hallway. All the shared space doesn't really feel that communal as much as you end up feeling a little bit like you're on display if you use it, mm-hmm. you know? But the fact that they're inviting her to a dinner party there means that she's actually been really successful at creating some sort of communal area that actually does support community building. Right. <laughs> right, yeah, there's ways you could do that, like you said, in, in a way that doesn't really make people feel comfortable or, you know communal really it just feels like you're in this wide open space where everybody can watch you doing things Um, (laughs) or you're in a space that doesn't facilitate interaction between you and your neighbors and the only place that that happens is in the communal space which I don't necessarily think is the best way either you know I've lived in many apartment buildings in my lifetime and have had like zero interaction with my neighbors Right? Except for, like, banging the broom on the ceiling when they're too... Yeah, or, like, <laughs> hold the elevator. You know? yeah. Like, all right, hi, how are you? Like, oh, you're, you're, you've been living next to me for three years? Like, oh, nice to meet you. Yeah, it's... I, I love that. And it's super important as we go forward because there's going to be so many more people. I guess I'm not surprised she brought Young into the whole conversation. <laughs> Young, the Carl Young, the... What do you call him? A philosopher? A psychiatrist? Was he a psychoanalyst? I think he's a psychoanalyst, yes. But I really appreciated her illustrating that the midlife crisis is not something to necessarily be mocked and avoided, that it's actually a really great opportunity for personal growth, which for her it was. Mm -hmm. But mostly she described it as like shedding all these rules she had created for herself and going back to some of the more free creativity that she remembers from her youth and having Mm -hmm. a lot of fun with that. And that set the stage for her sort of growing into who she's supposed to be as opposed to this like preformed idea of who she thought she'd be that she was adhering to. Yeah. we We all kind of try to manipulate our identities when we're young and we have these ideas of who we're supposed to be and how how that person is going to satisfy all the requirements that our parents set out for us that we feel like would satisfy our place in society and frequently we just have to figure out like that suit doesn't fit man it doesn't fit well sometimes it's like you get so 
I guess a good way to think of it too is like when you're younger and you picture like how your life is going to be and what you're going to do when you get older and blah, blah, blah. And you have all these boxes that you want to check as you check those boxes, you know, and as you get older, you get to a point where you check all of those boxes. Right. But like when you're in your twenties or your teens or even like younger, like 40 seems like old, (laughs) but once you get to 40 and you've checked all those boxes, you're like, Oh my God, I still have half my life left. Like I'm not dead yet. So what do you do now? Like once you've checked all those boxes and like, that's kind of, I think what some people get to where they're, they're kind of trying to figure out what their next thing is, like whether or not they want to stay doing what they're doing for the rest of their life, or, you know, they need to shake things up and find something else, or they go through a really like crazy life experience, like having kids or getting a divorce or you know, maybe they lose their job and they start a new career. All kinds of things can happen as you get older. Um, it's just trying to figure out how to navigate that toward happiness and contentment. Well, and so frequently checking off those boxes provides a different sort of sense of fulfillment than you thought it would. Right. I'm just saying that, like, a lot of times you can check off those damn boxes and then you're like, oh, OK, but that's not what life is about but right. I got my checklist accomplished yeah <laughs> like oh you know I became a doctor or whatever and I make x amount of dollars a year and that's what I wanted to do and now I'm here and I'm like oh it doesn't feel you know satisfying or it doesn't I don't feel accomplished or it's not bringing me the happiness they thought it would bring me or maybe it does but it you know but as time goes on it doesn't anymore because yeah. we're, we all are constantly changing and evolving Hopefully, that's the only thing that's constant, right? Right. Is change. (laughs) It's true. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. And then you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can even ask Siri or Alexa or um, your mom. You should probably tell your mom about Clever Podcast. I think she'd enjoy us, don't you, Jamie? Yeah, definitely. And then go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Barbara's work, which is totally cool. And you can also connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We read every single comment, retweet. We make sure to be happy when we get a like. (laughs) We're just really happy to engage (laughs) with you guys online. And this episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.